0: Ephesians chapter 1, if you're new, first time the Redemption, welcome. Uh, We have just started a couple weeks ago um, a study of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, which, no exaggeration, contains within it um, some of the most magnificent truths uh, of of God through Jesus to the church I've ever heard of before. So... um, We get to um, pack all of that and talk about that for the next 10 months, which we're excited to do so. So uh, we wanna do this, we wanna read it, and uh, we're gonna backpedal to verse three and read to verse six, because we have two verses today, five and six to deal with, and then we're gonna pray and ask for the Spirit's presence in what we're doing, and then uh, we'll talk. Let's read together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're about to look into uh, the good news. The, the amazing picture of your activity and your provision for your people. And to be fair, God, there's, there's many of us here who have heard these things many times and, and now we're just comfortable with knowing these things. But Paul's expression here is so grand and so big. Um, God, help our affections rise to the level of these truths, I pray as well for every week when when we have people who uh, might not know of these amazing realities in Christ, and some of them might even sound a little difficult, Lord, I pray that your spirit would would be here and uh, super abound in this study. God, protect my mouth so I say nothing that isn't true. And uh, God, I pray that your spirit would take it and apply it to every single individual person here. And at the end of it, we pray that you would receive all glory, honor, and praise. And we pray it in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Okay, let me ask you some questions. Um, do you really know how blessed you are? Like, that's your deal, not my deal. You, do you know? Do you really know how spiritually rich we are in Christ? Like it's bigger than I can make and I'm gonna try to repeat at least a little bit of what Paul is saying here. To be fair, I think there are moments where some of us are really close to that truth, like I really get it, I really understand it and then, then it just dissipates and we get really comfortable with we get comfortable with these grand things and they don't move the needle that much. Some of, you, some of you are gonna hear things maybe for the very first time this week and they're gonna create all sorts of struggle in your heart and you might push back on some of those things. That's okay, uh, uh, God's spirit is good and he's a great uh, teacher and a great pastor. So um, I, uh, let me describe it in illustration. I saw a YouTube video this week that paints this picture perfectly uh, of the reality that i don 't think we 're very familiar with how much we have in Christ there was a guy who uh, had his driver 's window on his truck stop working and uh, he decided he didn 't want to spend the money to take it to a shop so he thought he 'd give it a try himself so he 's in his driveway and he takes the he takes the door cover off of his door and inside the door the reason why the window stopped working is because there 's a bag a huge bag full of money stuffed in the door frame and he unpacks this bag, and there's thousands of dollars. Now, he refused to say how much because he didn't want to pay taxes probably or whatever you have to do with that. <laughs> but he's, there's thousands of dollars laid out, and he's had the truck forever. So, so spiritually speaking, just picture this. All of that money was always, always his. He had no concept. Some of us, spiritually speaking, have all this provision in Christ, all this riches in Christ. And we walk around, I don't know, what do I have? What do I really have? And so we kind of live like this when we should be living like this. Does that make sense? We don't understand what's ours in Christ. Now, if that rings any bell in your heart at all, then I couldn't point you to a better, more clearer more powerful place than Ephesians chapter 1. Because here, in, in this at least one long paragraph from verse 3 to verse 14, is one giant, uninterrupted sentence without punctuation in Scripture. So imagine this no periods, no commas, no indication on where you should breathe and how, what you should emphasize. It just came out of Paul. This is very much like me when I get intense. I don't need punctuation, I'm saying something. You know what I'm saying? You just get it out, you're just going for it. Paul is, in his emotion, in his excitement and enthusiasm, is just saying verse three to verse 14 in one run-on sentence. And the whole thing is basically building on the case of verse three. Look at verse three again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now that, that is like a header over the rest of this long sentence. Every spiritual blessing, every reality. This verse 4 to 14 is an epic uh, like description of, of that blessing. In other words, it's kind of like the amplification of every spiritual blessing. Now, you might not know this. I don't know how long you've been going to redemption, but I used to lead worship here. And I'm kind of guitar buff. I got lots of guitars at my house. I love to play them. Um, and one of the things that I enjoy is, is like these amplifiers. I'm a tech guy in that way. And they are, they're up here every week. Nobody even pays attention to them. They have one purpose, one purpose. There's a little magnet inside every electric guitar and it produces a certain amount of ohms. And when you play that thing, all it's supposed to do is take the, the passion, the affections of an artist, the interest, the, 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 all the expression, and it just amplifies it. Verses 4 through verse 14 is God's volume knob for all the blessings we have in Christ. It is the way that God says, let me scream what all the blessings look like. Does that make sense? I hope that leaves a picture because when you come back to Ephesians over and over again, you're going to get why this is no punctuation sentence from Paul. This is one loud description of God's affections for his people, the amplified truth. In these 12 verses, there is one actor who is God, and there is one receiver who is us. If you go through this passage, maybe you have, if you circle every time you see an us, every time that you see a we or you, you'll see this overwhelming 15 references to how it affects you and me. This is ours. This is for us, church. All these wonderful blessings are clearly pointed at our benefit. He is the doer and we are the receiver. That's Paul's point. Now, I'm going to take two words from the last section of verse 4 and the first word of verse 5, I'm going to create like a bumper sticker. And we're going to preach five points out of verses 5 and 6, okay? What are the last two words of verse 4? Look at your text. In love, right? I don't know what version you're using. I hope it's ESV. That's what I'm using. In love, what's the first word of verse five? He, stop. Circle that. If I gave you a paper and I put as the heading, in love he, and just put a bunch of blank lines, could you, could you fill it up? Could you write of the wonders of God's grace in your life? Could you say, oh, in love he, in love he cared, in love he forgave, in love he gave grace, in love he blessed, could you f- overflow, like Paul's overflowing in these 12 verses, in love he? I mean, that's, that's essential to understand Paul's attitude and heart here. He can't control himself, in love he, and he just starts to, excuse the terminology, vomit all this stuff that he can think of, Okay. Now, I probably don't have to tell you, but our culture has a serious problem with defining what love looks like. And I'm not trying to say not everybody knows, but generally speaking, most of our culture believes that love is basically how you feel, predominantly. That's that's what explains all the quitting. If I feel like it, I'm committed. If I don't feel like it, I'm out of here. I'll quit my job, I'll quit you, I'll get a new person. I'll just feel different and I'm gone, right? Fair? That's generally the majority's opinion, okay? But when we encounter the love of God, it's totally different. Because the love of God, it includes feelings, but it's shown in action. Action. I found an article uh, in Times Magazine from a couple years ago, and it was entitled, We're Defining Love the Wrong Way, which intrigued me um, to see what this writer thought and would say. And he starts the article with this sentence, It's time to change the meaning of love. Okay, what does he have to say? And so I read all of this, uh, this article, but it was the last little couple of sentences that I want to share with you, because this is, this is a, perfect, a perfect depiction of what I'm saying. He finishes this way. We would have a healthier conception of love if we understood that love, like parenting or friendship, is a feeling that expresses itself in action. What we really feel is reflected in what we do. The poet's song is dazzling and the passion is powerful but the deepest beauty of love is how it changes lives. I thought when I read that, oh my gosh, that is God. God didn't just go, hey, I'm feeling something today. He did everything to change our world, to change us, to take this heart of stone, this warring heart, resisting God and take that thing out and stick something that beats in there. He did that, right? Now, when I say something that moves your soul, you smile at least, okay? So we don't have this one-dimensional experience. This is a family here. He moves to change us, amen? That's what he does. Okay, everything about this change is anchored in the motivation of that one little phrase that Paul writes between four and five, in love he. And he's about to tell us these things. And so... Let me tease it a little bit farther. If I, and, and I tried this question on Neil uh, Pitchell, and he got the answer. So I'm assuming you can get the answer. No offense, Neil. Um, if I were to say to you, what's the number one issue? I know we got lots of issues. But if I said, what's the number one issue plaguing mankind? I, I threw that at Neil, and he got the answer right away. He said pride. Which, to be honest, is every experience of bad in our world. But the source of pride is called insecurity. And what happens to people who are insecure is they puff up and blow up and become proud to hide the problems of insecurity, right? Our medicine for insecurity is pride. So that's why you see it expressed in different places. Here's here's the reality. Without the help of God, we don't know who we are. We don't know our worth and we don't know our purpose. We have no concept and so we flounder and we fight and we disagree and we try. God's love that Paul's about to unpack for us is the cure to the plague. It just is. You want peace, church? You really want peace? Then you have to understand what you are in Christ. You gotta get that. You gotta get it in your bones. It's gotta go all the way to your soul. It can't be an answer for a quiz. It's gotta be transformative in in your heart. In love, he. So, Today we got these two verses we get to see and to celebrate his love for us. So watch in your Bibles. We're going to just go through the phrases as they appear there. The first one is this. The first reality of his love is his love is decisive. Verse 5, in love he, what's it say? Predestined. Verse 4, last week Tyler introduced us to this idea where Paul says that he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Now, Paul, in this short paragraph, couldn't be more clear that God's love is seen in his decision, his election for the saints. That is how he expresses his love. Now, let me just unpack a couple of things that it's not, and Tyler dealt with one of these. He said that it is not like a a, a the government beef grader who goes around and says, well, your choice beef, when they stamp you and say, well, that you're special, you're pretty, you're good, you're talented, you're interested, you've got a good heart, and a good demeanor, you're picked. That's not what God does. It's not based on us, it's not based on what we do or how we compare to others. God is not selective that way. God's election is not his foreknowledge. This is not like, some people have described it this way, that God looks down this whole thing called time and and these are my words, not necessarily others, but he sees your sovereign decision for him and he likes it and he says, okay because you were good to pick me you're in. That's not what this this choosing is, it's not what predestination is. It's also not a man-made idea, which some people have accused it of, like somebody just ginned this up somebody who thinks too much and that's not true. John Stott said it this way. The doctrine of election is a divine revelation, not a human speculation. It was not dreamed up by Martin Luther or John Calvin or St. Augustine or by the Apostle Paul for that matter. It is not to be set aside as the imagination of some overactive religious minds, but rather humbly accepted as revelation from God. We must never allow our subjective experience of choosing Christ watered down the fact that we no, would not have chosen him if he had not first chosen us. The doctrine of election presents us with a God who, who defies finite analysis. It is a doctrine which lets God be God. In John chapter six, Jesus made it blunt and clear. No man can come to me unless the Father draws him, period. You can't, can't do it unless he does some action on you. You can't come without God's effective love. That's this word without more than feeling, action to change, that is God's love on people. So I had one uh, writer use this illustration. I thought it worked. Let me share it with you. If, if you've ever watched any shows or been in any junkyards, they have these giant cranes with magnets on them. They can throw a switch, right? And so this magnet then can kind of sort through the pile of garbage and, and it, could, it can affect the ferrous metals, the steels and things like that, right? Right? But it has no effect on aluminum, copper, brass. It just kind of skips over. But it does draw the steel. It's in a similar way that God's elective will irresistibly draws those whom he predestines and has no effect whatsoever on those he doesn't. Does that make sense? God draws those before the foundation of the world he predestined unto salvation. And he turns it on and you come. It's irresistible in that way. So you can sit in a service over and over again and hear about God's wonderful love. You can be invited to God's wonderful love. You can hear good news a thousand times. You can be invited to it and offered it freely. And you can't explain why you resist it other than the fact that you just do. You're like copper in the pile of metal, I'm not going. It ain't happening, it has no effect. It doesn't move the needle. The explanation for that is the predestination of God. Now, let me just confess to you that is a difficult truth. It is for me. Um, I was born into a pastor's home. That doesn't do anything other than make you guilty of every crime. But I was close enough to hear stuff. And then in 1980, God, through a series of failures and sin, opened my eyes, and I got saved, born again. And the first thing I thought of was, well, okay, if this is real, I wanna give my heart, I wanna serve, and so I'm off to Bible college, right? And so I get in Bible college. The very first class I had was a, a class on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, how God saves people. And a wonderful, soft man named John Smith, Dr. Smith, introduced me, first time in my 21 years of existence, this idea that God elects, and predestines and chooses, and I was angry because I thought he said my dad was a heretic. My dad never told me this. My dad's a good man. He loves Jesus. He never said a word about it, didn't know anything about it. And I fought it, and I fought it, and I thought, well, all these people I know and all these sermons that I've heard, how could these people not know? How could they not know? And I bowed up and stiffened up. I'm a 21-year-old idiot in front of a doctor of theology, and I'm going, you're wrong. You're wrong. And he just smiled at me. He said, I understand, I understand the tension. Read your Bible, just read your Bible. And so it was like a six year journey, something like that. And the the first half of that journey was my war. I was out to prove it wrong. So I was looking, man, I was looking for the exceptions to the rule. And then something happened in the middle. Something turned from fighting to argue against it to, uh uh-oh, it's everywhere, everywhere. You don't find God engaging with anybody without him making the move, everywhere. And suddenly I spent all these years trying to find it everywhere and then I just tapped out. God, it's your deal, it's not my deal. Whether my experience was I was there that day I chose, that's true, I remember. But it doesn't explain why I chose. The the magnetic, irresistible draw of God is why I chose. And that is what Paul is celebrating here. That is the big commercial. Like, God goes on display. Do you understand your blessings? You wouldn't, and he did. He drew you to himself. Praise be to God. So the beauty of God's love is seen in his decisive love. He predestined us. Let's build on this sentence. His love is also very specific. In love he predestined. What's the next word? Put it up there. Us. It's personal. Church, circle us. Some see the word chose in verse four and predestined in verse five as a way to say the exactly the same thing. And it is sort of true, but not totally true because the word predestined is the love of God pointed directly to us with affection in mind. The word predestined actually means determined beforehand, to ordain, to set a circle around. We get our English word horizon from it. So yesterday I was driving towards the west through hayfields, okay? And it was clear sky. So I could see everywhere to the right and everywhere flat to the left and everywhere in front of me and the sun was going down. And it was as if the horizon had circled me. That's the picture, that's the picture that Paul's painting by using this, this word. It's used of making vowels with all the details of the promise involved. This isn't a cold and calculated word that Paul uses. It is if, and you've got to think of it this way, God drawing a circle around you. It's personal. It is so specific. Let me paint another picture. It is like you know, if you're a young man and you're 20 whatever and you're hoping someday to find love and everybody's an option. You know those days? I wonder, I wonder. And you got an interest in everybody until the day comes and you see her and it's her. And suddenly the focus gets really intense. Like you don't even see other people and so now all your time and energy and affections, all your money, all of it gets zoned in on that person. That is like drawing a circle around that person. That's what God does for the saints. He circles them. His love is specific. So let me add to it. Not only is his love decisive and specific, but his love makes us his children. Verse four, let's add to the phrase, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. In the 39 books of the Old Testament, the scriptures refer to God as Father only 14 times, and every time it does, it's always impersonal, and it's always in reference to a nation, not a person. Did you know that? In the Gospels alone, Jesus refers to the Father only, or to God, as the Father only, and he does it 60 times. And the word that he chooses to use, we're all familiar with. He chooses, of all words, to talk about God, he uses Abba, which is the word, the real translation in the the Aramaic is daddy. To the Hebrew mind, this was at least radical, if not scandalous, to get that irreverent with God. We can't even say his name. And Jesus says, No, let me show you who he is. He's your daddy. He's as close and personal and intimate as any good father could possibly fathom. He is your dad. In Romans chapter eight, Paul again describes it this way. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption and sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Again in Galatians 4, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. That's how close he's drawn us. And so you just got to get this epic paragraph, run-on sentence from Paul in his celebration of what God has done. He's talking about this relationship. We're close, me and him. This is not God on a hill that I have to be terrified about. This is a father who is wooing me closer. This is dad. Now, I've never adopted. Um, At my age, that would be a bad idea. I know lots of people, lots of my friends have. And I don't know if this is fair, but I'm just gonna put a, like a general feeling out there and see if it works. Um, most people, I think, without a lot of thought, maybe without a lot of experience, when you think of adoption and you picture it, you typically picture a beautiful orphan, beautiful for whatever reason, beautiful for their need, beautiful for their age, beautiful for whatever reason. Like you, you as the adoptive parent, look at them and go, oh my gosh, my heart is committed. Like I really love them. Look, look at them, look at their need and you're won over. If that is your view of gospel adoption, take it out of your head and set it aside for a second. Cause I'm going to give you God's version of adoption. I love that picture by the way, but let's add to it the gospel adoption. To understand God's adoption, you have to understand that God has changed the status of slaves to sin and lawbreakers at war with God to children of God. This would be the equivalent of going to the worst prison in the possible planet filled with murderers and haters and all sorts of bad people, and you go in there and say, I'm going to give you my kingdom. I'm going to let you have all of my stuff, and I'm going to love you forever That's the equivalent. It's not the beautiful little orphan that needs you. It is the God-hater. It is the warrior. It is the resistant. It is the train wreck life that shakes his fist at God and says, I hate you. That is the picture of God's divine adoption. In spite of all those reasons and all those expressions in, in the saints, God sets his affections on us so much so that we'd be called the children of God. Now, I could do a whole series, maybe we should someday, on the adoption of God, but let me just blast through some things that I read this week just to kind of overwhelm you with this concept. The first thing you have to understand about adoption, it has to be legal, in reality and spiritually as well. There are legal issues that exist between us and God that he has to deal with. To adopt us, he has to, uh, there's some justice issues and law issues that God cares about to make us his own. Because the law says if you sin, you will die. Die is separated from God forever. There's a problem. Somebody has to fix that problem. And he says, you need to be righteous. Okay, so we got two insurpassable issues for us. My sin is so great, I deserve judgment. And his standard is so great, I need righteousness, both of which are legal issues I can't fix on my own. I can't become righteous. And he goes, okay, now that you're righteous, come in. And now that you're acceptable, come in. Somebody needs to legally change that status. Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross. And he stands in our way. And he says, put the punishment on me. And so God's justice, all of his justice, which he can't ignore, gets poured out on Jesus. Every sin that you and I have committed, every reason why we deserve to be punished has been done. Nothing's been neglected. Full punishment. And his righteousness, his requirement for his people, God imputes Jesus' perfection to us. And we stand righteous. Legal demands met. God had to deal with both. And he did it through Christ. He satisfied all the legal demands. Let me, let me just read a verse that's super powerful in Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's where this legal issue is settled Jesus satisfied it and we are legally made sons way before we can express the affection of this relationship, you understand that? Our experience goes like this, God changes all these issues, deals with my sin and punishment, he deals with my righteous need and suddenly guess what happens to my heart? I really love him, I really want him. That's the sequence of salvation. Our adoption is eternally secure, no more fear because if it's anchored in him and his work and his provision, And not in you, could you imagine? Could you imagine if God decided to say, let's do a man, God thing. You do your part, you hold up your end of the deal and I'll do my end of the deal. We're all screwed. I can't hold up my end of the deal by the time I get to the parking lot. God, in spite of us, provides what we couldn't get. No more fear. We don't walk around crippled like he's gonna change his plan because it's not dependent on me, it's dependent on him. I love this idea. In our adoption, the judges become Dad. You know, I've never, I've never been to criminal court yet. But I assume you stand there totally freaked out. This man is gonna, he has the right, and maybe if you've broken the law in a certain way, it's gonna send you away, you're gonna get punished. That courtroom doesn't exist for us. The only room is the living room. We sit with dad all the time. All the time, the judge has become the father. Our adoption is lavish, according to the scriptures. Lavish in its past, present, future grace issues. So all the stuff you have done, grace covers it. All the stuff you're struggling with, grace covers it. All the stuff you have been yet to invent, <laughs> grace covers it. Our adoption is we get all the kingdom. Like we get, to, we get to be in it. We get to be part of the story. We get to do his work. We get to experience his kingdom. And our adoption is to have the very life of God, his spirit, making our spirit come alive. He lives in me. Can you possibly fathom that? Do you understand why Paul can't help himself? He's just running off at the mouth. Everything, by the way, about being a Christian is understandable, um, is best understood as we being the children of God, J.I. Packer says this, if you wanna judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook in life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. You have to understand the magnitude of what Paul is saying. He has adopted you. In love, he brought you in and called you his own. Let's add to this list. His love is driven by his pleasure. Verse five, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I think the NIV does a better job of interpreting this section, to be honest with you, because the the word actually is pleasure and not purpose. In fact, it's, it's better read according with his pleasure and will. It's the same phrase, by the way, in verse 9 where Paul is continuing the discussion on the blessings that we have where he says it better said this way, I think, that uh, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the pleasure, his good pleasure is the phrase better said there. Here's what you need to understand about this. When God reached down into this mess, your mess... When he reached into our world to pull us out, to adopt us and give us a new name, to give us an eternal inheritance that according to Paul can't spoil, perish, or fade. When he did that, it was love that drove him. And watch this. This is the big part you need to understand. It was his supreme delight to do it. Amazing. We, uh, I'm assuming we're alike in some ways. We do lots of things because of our will. Illustration, New Year, right? This is what happens in New Year. A lot of people start to sign up for gyms, myself included. Some of you, by the way, no offense, you're nuts because you do it and you like to do it. The rest of us, if we're honest, we do it because somebody told us it would benefit us, right? Okay, let me make this distinction. In two weeks or a week, I suppose, from now, I'm gonna make a decision of my will And I'm gonna sit on a couch for five hours and watch the Super Bowl. And I will be happy to do so. It will make me thrilled to to do it. Listen, church, it pleases God to save. I know sometimes we have this picture of God that he's just somewhat mechanical. He's like Oz, he's pulling levers and he's not that aware, that interested. No, he's interested and it pleases him. Why? Here's why, because it puts him on display. His holiness, his grace, his mercy, his relentless pursuit of sinners, his goodness and a thousand other characteristics of our God go on display in his pursuit of us as his children. And it pleases him to do so. His love is decisive. His love is specific. It makes us his children. His love is driven by his pleasure. Here's one last thing for this day. His love has one grand goal the praise of his glorious grace. It all just flows right from the text. You know, somebody, I read this, so I'm not taking credit for it, but somebody said there might be another verse you could add to the text that would help describe this. So we all know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Uh, This guy suggests that the verse, another verse could say it this way, for God so loved himself that he gave himself, which describes the reason behind the reason to the praise of his glorious grace. And I know how that makes us feel because we we kind of look at those thoughts through the lens of each other, but it is not conceited for God to be all about his glory when he is perfectly the most glorious person there is. He has no flaws, he has no weaknesses, no shortcomings, no insufficiencies, no problems, no insecurity, he's perfectly perfect. He's perfectly powerful. He is the focal point of everything and everything holds together by the power of his word. It's ridiculous. He's it. Okay? And he is the ultimate joy of all praise. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. You and I were made praise machines. Desperate praise machines. It's why, it's why in a week they're gonna scream like crazy for a football game and they'll do it again next year, because you're wired that way. You'll praise your kids' accomplishments, you'll praise your raise at work, you'll praise, I don't know, some cure from cancer, you'll praise lots of them. You're wired to praise, you can't help yourself praise. But here's the reality of this truth, this praise of his glorious grace. Our ultimate joy is praise when we praise the greatest thing. You want the ultimate experience of joy? Point your praise to the ultimate. Sometimes you and I will praise the wrong things and we just get let down. You know, I praise that I got married today. Uh Uh-oh, he's a jerk. The praise just dissipates. You want the ultimate joy, then praise the ultimate thing. And the ultimate thing, the ultimate person, the ultimate great is God. Now, you have been patiently sitting here for the last few minutes. And if you've actually listened, then you've heard what Paul has said, that you're loved before time. Without any merit, you are loved by God's decision, not yours, that you're adopted as sons because it pleased him to do so. If you're listening, you've probably got one question, why? That is the answer, because his glory goes on display. That's the answer we have. That's the answer that he gives. All of creation was made, by the way, to the praise of his glorious grace. All of redemption, this whole story, Genesis to Revelation, is a redemptive story and redemption is to the praise of his glorious grace. Why are we loved like that? Listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Because the father loves the son so much that his love for his son spills over for everyone who is found in him. Do you get that? The father loves Jesus. Everyone hidden in Jesus He accepts. You understand, I hope, why your salvation is immovable, why it can't be lost, because it's anchored in the relationship between the Father and the Son. For God to pull back his love for any reason would be to deny his very Son. The Trinity would blow apart. This relationship that has existed in perfect union for all eternity would cease to exist if God didn't keep his promise to his son to forgive all those who came. Do you get that? It's marvelous. It's amazing. Now, if you're sitting here and you ever dealt with insecurities, ever, which is where we started this discussion, and you're wondering if you're lovable enough, or if you'll finish, or a thousand other things that you struggle with, if you get this paragraph, your life will change. I promise. So let me ask you a couple questions as we finish. How does all of this affect you? What are you thinking right now? I wish I had 10 minutes to let you think. What is running through your head? I hope, I hope that what goes through your head right now is, oh my gosh, thank you God, praise, praise you you rescued a radical, you did it. And I try my best to avoid it, but you're undeniable, you're unavoidable, you're inescapable, God, you did it. Praise to his glorious grace. God chose and predestined the church before the foundations of the world in order that no human being could boast or take glory for himself, but that all the glory might be his. Salvation is not partly of God and partly of man, entirely of God to guarantee that every provision and every detail of salvation was accomplished before any human being was ever born or before any planet was formed on which he could be born the ultimate reason for everything that exists is the glory of his wonderful grace amen amen let's thank God for that truth right there Lord God we do thank you And those words even sound ridiculous because it's so much more than that. It's almost like we want to be like Paul and just run off at the mouth on all these things. In love, he. And to be fair, Father, we're overwhelmed just by what Paul has revealed to us. But we say thank you. We're so grateful that in spite of us, you moved towards us. In your kindness, in your fatherliness, you have reached into the mess and made us yours. So... God, thank you that you were personal with us, that you saw fit to in in beginning of time to reach down for us and extend your grace to us. We wanna leave here living out to the praise of your glorious grace. So help us do that by your spirit we pray, amen.